This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Glenn Weldon discusses his new book, The Cape Crusade, Batman, and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese explores the London Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And in hardcover fiction, we have a new number one, two, and three. That doesn't happen wow. every day. No. Um, we've uh, got at number one, James Patterson, co-written with Mark Sullivan. This is Private Paris, the 11th book in the Private series. And uh, starring Jack Morgan, who's a classic James Patterson kind of lone investigator type. And uh, in this case, uh, he's in Paris at the the local office of an organization called Private, Mm. which does what you can imagine. And uh, he gets involved quickly in a a missing persons case, tracking down a young woman who's gone missing. So we don't have a review of this title, but uh, the jacket copy says it's all about religious and ethnic tensions simmering in Paris, and only Jack and his private team can connect the dots before the smoldering powder keg explodes, which, given recent events in Paris, was maybe not the best metaphor they could have chosen Um, but clearly that's part of uh, the the backdrop to all of this so that's at number one Uh, and the numbers are are fairly close but uh, you know not not quite neck and neck that sold about 30,000 copies out of the gate Um, just below it number two Danielle steals the property of a noble woman sold about 24,000 copies so that gives you an idea of their relative popularity very good numbers either way and uh, obviously Danielle Steele's been a household name approximately since I was born. Uh, and uh, this is a, another standalone from her that's got all the usual Danielle Steele recipe. Uh, there's a lot of focus on women, women's uh, experiences in history, and uh, a romantic thread, but it's not a romance, and there's plenty of suspense. Um, basically, putting it all together, a little bit of something for everyone. And again, we don't have a review of this, uh, but it's about a, a law clerk and a fine arts expert who come together to inspect the contents of a safe deposit box and find uh, more right. than they bargained for. So that's at number two. And at number three, we have Dark Promises by Christine Fian. Uh, this is the 29th book in her Carpathian series. Uh, long, long, long running series. Paranormal uh supernatural books uh, and uh, in this case the Carpathians are vampires who come from the Carpathian mountains and uh, you know, this one has a bit of a romantic thread in it but uh, is really focused on two different women as they try to deal with the fallout from a vampire war so that's it number three and again that's the 29th book in the series very long-running series and uh, very popular. Um, sold about 9,600 copies in its first week. So that's our one, two, and three. A little bit further down, number six, we have The Curse of Strahd, which is a Wizards of the Coast book. That's a, a tie-in and uh, Dungeons and & Dragons. And um, this is not not always common to see those books popping up so high on the bestseller list. So it's a little interesting. Further down, at number 10, we have Deep Blue by Randy Wayne White. We do have a review of this one. And uh, it's the 23rd novel in his Doc Ford series. And uh, it pits the Doc Ford against a Chicagoan-turned-terrorist who executes hostages on videos. And uh, Doc has to track him down. And uh, our review says uh, that lively characters, enough action for three summer blockbusters... And plenty of plot twists make this a great addition to the best-selling series. And uh, finally, just a little bit lower at 13, we have At the Edge of the Orchard by Tracy Chevalier. Or Chevalier, probably. Trips me up sometimes. (laughs) And uh, 
her second novel was Girl with a Pearl Earring. It's the one that she's best right. known for. Um, this is her eighth novel, and uh, we say that it's a compelling showcase of 19th century American pioneering spirit in which a family from Connecticut struggles to establish an apple orchard in the swamplands of Ohio. And uh, the family's name is Good Enough. Again, Funny. probably pronounced Good Enough. Right. But uh, that gives you a sense of them. Um, they are basically just doing their best to be good enough. And uh, against a backdrop of family travails in Ohio and personal revelations in California, come intriguing facts about apples, such as their division into eaters and spitters, the latter used for apple cider and applejack, and also how American pine trees, redwoods, and sequoias were introduced in England. So the, we say that the author's insightful observations about domestic life and the pull of relationships bring depth to a family story that inevitably comes full circle in a most satisfying way. Mm. So that's what we've got on the fiction list. And uh, not every day that we get new one, two, and three. No, that's uh, true. Knocking all the others down. Well, I'm going to jump right into our number 10, going along the lines of self-improvement. This is called A Mind of Your Own, The Truth About Depression and How Women Can Heal Their Bodies to Reclaim Their Lives by Kelly Brogan. She's an MD. And then after that, we have John O'Leary's On Fire, The Seven Choices to Ignite a Radically Inspired Life. So we've been seeing, yeah, these are often books that are on the bestseller list. That's on number 12. We have no reviews of either one, but we do have one for number 22, Boys Among Men by Jonathan Abrams. This is uh, in our review. We say Kevin Garnett and Kobe Bryant's direct ascension from high school seniors to NBA rookies was considered unusual when the Minnesota Timberwolves and Charlotte Hornets drafted the Phenoms in 1995 and 1996. This book is coming on the popularity of now what's going on the NCAA College Basketball Championships, March mm -hmm. Madness. Uh, we say with lean, detailed pro and lots of reporting. Abram shows that teenagers who approach this adult opportunity as a job, not as a right, thrived. Um, there's a lot of talk right now um, about whether college athletes should, in fact, be paid. Um, and so there's a, there's a couple of op-eds in today's uh, uh, New York Times about that. Finally, we have number 25, a starred review, Rightful Heritage, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Land of America by Douglas Brinkley. Brinkley, the, who wrote The Quiet World, a professor of history at Rice University, succeeds in showing that FDR should be remembered for his extraordinary, often unsung role as great conservationist. In the review, we say Brinkley's book adds significantly to knowledge of FDR both as man and president and ranked among the best books on this major historical figure. And that's what we have for nonfiction. All right. So not, not a whole lot of excitement this week, but uh, we'll definitely keep an eye. And those self-help books really do just keep coming. Yeah. One after the another. Beginning of after the year. Another. Yeah, exactly. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Glenn Weldon tells us how to identify geeks and nerds in the wild. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Glenn Weldon on the line. His new book is The Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. Hi, Glenn. So glad you could join us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, so this is your second book. The first one was on Superman. This one's about Batman and the rise of nerd culture. So tell us a little bit about what nerds love about capes and the caped crusader. Well, I think Batman's a really good way to take a look at nerd culture. A, because uh, Batman is in many ways the ultimate nerd. He's a dude who collects a lot of stuff and keeps it in his basement. Uh, he's famously sort of not great with people. But the most important thing, and the thing that I think is the through line here, is that he is obsessed. Uh, and the, he was made that way in the 1970s when, they, when all of a sudden superheroes needed a personality. Before, they could be just cops in capes. And the only thing that set them apart from each other was the powers and their costumes. But now... In the 70s, suddenly the audience was older, and it was also a more insular audience of teens and adults, uh, So, and they were demanding more complicated stories and more complicated heroes. So they made him an obsessed nerd, and uh, I think there is a whole generation of readers who uh, really identify. There's other superheroes who are nerds. Peter Parker's a nerd, but uh, Batman is obsessed, and that, I think, is the key. 
so um, there's there's a lot going on you know, deep in the the Batman psyche. We all pretty much know the origin story, but um, how how did how was he developed as uh, this very obsessed, obsessive character, kind of from the ground up? Well, he wasn't uh, for the ground up. In 1939, he was introduced. He was a ripoff of the Shadow. He killed a lot of folk. He skulked around, uh, but. Within a year's time, they introduced Robin the Boy Wonder because they wanted to lighten the tone a bit. They, they were worried about the violence and the darkness. And then for 30 years, they just uh, were together, Batman and Robin, in a sunlit Gotham City, fighting criminals who, you know, carried loot in bags with big dollar signs on them. It was all very, you know, uh, friendly and anodyne and cheerful. Uh, and then the Adam West Batman series came out on television in 1966, uh, transformed this uh, comic book character into a sensation, but that fad faded really quickly. And in the wake of that, uh, they needed to remake the character. So Denny O'Neill, who was the writer of the Batman comic at the time, uh, decided he'd reach back to that first incarnation, that dark uh, Batman, that kind of urban ninja. And he noticed something that other people had kind of ignored or just treated as backstory, as a plot point. This notion that he swears an oath to himself to uh, spend the rest of his life warring on all criminals. Up to that point, it had been backstory. It had been like a boxy check. It's a way you get the guy into the cape. That's, that was all it was. And, you know, because all heroes had them because that's all they needed. Um, but in looking for something to set this character apart, and in the 1970s, when pop psychology was surging, uh, he borrowed this notion of obsession from psychoanalysis, and he put it, and he realized this has to be who he is. This has to be the thing that drives him. Uh, and that turned him from basically Adam West into the very roots of this dark, grim, gritty uh, character we see today. You couldn't have gotten to the, the Batman that everybody knows today without Adam West. So I want to talk a little bit about that 1966 show. That's the one that I remember most growing up. What what was Batman to pop culture then? I mean, was was he uh, a, a fave of nerds or, or maybe it's just nerds looking back on it now? Well, no, uh, the, the nerds hated it even then. I mean, they were looking forward to the show. I found an old fanzine or two where they, you could just see the excitement, because uh, these were, you know, um, again, teens and adults at this point. They were so looking forward to the show because it was going to be a Batman television series. It was going to be taking the character that they loved in, from the comics, which were read by only a few thousand people, and putting him in front of millions of eyes. Um, but what they did, because at that time, comics were seen as beneath contempt, junk culture. Um, but the pop art movement was cresting. And the pop art movement really valued things like uh, that, were, that were slick and commercial and colorful and mass-produced things like comic books. I mean, Roy Lichtenstein basically made his bones on, on stealing comic book panels and selling them for thousands and thousands of dollars. So that's what they did. They just took the comics of the day from 1964 and 1965, and in many cases, they just cut and pasted them right onto the screen. But to, they, they invested it with this mock gravity, this incredible seriousness, which is where the humor of the show comes from. So kids love it because of the action, because it's very, very comic book. It's, it's literally stealing all kinds of tropes from the comic books. But adults get it. Adults see that this is all being played for laughs. But the nerds hated it because they thought that the culture was making fun of their character. And in fact, all the culture was doing was really take the comics and, and, and actually the, the mission statement of the show was, let's play it straight. So for two years, there's uh, such a huge cultural penetrance to this, to this character, uh, because it is a, a fad, and just having, putting the word bat in front of everything, and, and saying holy blank, and uh, the, the design aesthetic of the show really caught on, but again, it's the kind of thing that couldn't and, and didn't last, and you can see that. I, I went back and read a lot of the reviews of uh, folks, and, and there are several people who are saying, this is great, but it's the kind of joke that gets old you know, on the third try, and uh, that's pretty much what happened. Um, I I remember watching the show and watching it very much as a as a young nerd in in, in reruns, not in its original incarnation. Um, but the nerdy parts were the parts that got me. I think the only scene that I still recall from memory is Batman teaching Robin how to do a jigsaw puzzle that's been turned upside down so that they only have the shapes of the pieces to go on because that's how they hone their investigative skills. It was like it was like Holmes teaching Watson. Um, that's exactly right. And, yeah. and uh, was, they also played uh, three dimensional chess. Yes, yeah, it was, that's 
That's right. That's it's exactly it. That's right. So for me, that was the nerdy aspect of the show. Like it was still sneaking its way in there. Uh, but I can definitely see how nerds who felt very protective of nerd culture uh, would be pretty upset by this approach to it from from the outside. Uh, and that's a theme that we're that we're still seeing today in a lot of ways, even as nerd culture is being mainstreamed. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. What happens to nerd culture when it becomes culture? That's something the book tries to grapple with. Uh, it's really fascinating. When Anytime you take a character out of the comics, you change them because you're giving them something they don't have on the comics page, which is a story. Uh, because on, on, the, on the comics page, uh, these characters are heavily licensed nuggets of intellectual property. They cannot change. There's style guides. There's, uh, there's licensing deals. You can't, they can't go through what a fictional character does with where they, where they emerge from a story that has an ending fundamentally different from how they began. They have to stay the same. So they can only iterate. So when you take a character out of the comic and put it into something like an action movie, like the, they did in 1989 with Michael Keaton and Tim Burton, um, you were giving him an ending. And that's not something that, that's kind of a rough fit over the character of Batman. And so it's, it's natural for nerds to kind of shy away from that. What's not natural is for it to devolve to this kind of toxic, uh, attacking that, that we see today. We saw versions of it early on. We certainly saw people attacking the uh, 1989 Batman film before it was made because they, they saw the casting of Michael Keaton and thought he was going in a pow zap direction. They hated the Joel Schumacher films <laughs> and uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Most uh, notably, you, you can't do the research for that without coming. You can just type in the word nipple and yep. Batman and your, yep. <laughs> your the, Lexus Nexus search is done. The, bat, the Batman armor, I, I remember, uh, I, like everybody I knew was just so outraged. I know, it's crazy. It's crazy. Two, two again, little bits of plastic on the to... armor and, uh, and that was it. Mm. Yep, yep. I mean, that's, I mean, like, the fact that he found homoerotic subtext in the Batman and Robin relationship is not shocking. I mean, it's right. there. It's, 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 all he was doing was turning the volume up. And I maintain, the point of the book is that there are different versions of Batman. And for nerds to insist today that there is only the grim, gritty, badass version, and that's the only one that matters, and that's the only one that's true, um, is is just really misguided because uh, people project onto this character the different things they want. The thing that's changed is that in the wake of the Schumacher films, Hollywood learned how to really exploit the fan base. Um, they would go out of their way to, as they were making Batman Begins, the Christopher Nolan film, after the Schumacher films had gone the way of the Dodo, uh, they nurtured, they, they trained every member of the cast, the director, the crew, to come out and be able to say, here's where we borrowed from the comics. Here's, we, I'm a lifelong comics fan. I, I love Batman. And that turned the, the fan base, uh, completely around. And all of a sudden, as each subsequent film comes out, and it gets light criticism from the critical community, uh, all of a sudden the, the nerds are in the inside of the tent pointing their spears outward. They are, they are not attacking Hollywood. They are attacking on behalf of Hollywood. It's very odd. <laughs> and so I, I want to go back to your, uh, you're talking about what makes Batman a little more nerdy uh, uh, than, say, uh, Peter Parker, uh, Spider-Man, who also was kind of kept to himself in a lab uh, though maybe he didn't collect things. Can you talk a little bit more about the difference between the two? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, Parker is a nerd who was bullied, and certainly that that uh, really appeals to this fan base. But I think there's something – every nerd I talked to as I was writing this book would at some point in our conversation say, well, Superman's not relatable. Batman is relatable. You or I could be Batman. Uh, because they think they could. Uh, we all think we could if we just do enough sit-ups. Um, but what I would point out <laughs> right. to them is, look, uh, he has a superpower that you're completely ignoring, which is his wealth. Uh, this unimaginable, limitless, magical wealth that makes everything possible. Uh, he would not exist without it. He would, it's not merely a plot point. It's who this character is. Uh, that makes him about as relatable as any billionaire. But I think there's something to the fact that he became a success and he has deep roots in his fan base here in the United States where we are taught from the from from our from our 
crib that uh, all of us could become billionaires mm. if all we just have to do is try really hard. Uh, the American dream feeds into this Batman idea. We all think we can perfect ourselves physically and mentally, and we all think, even though it's flatly impossible, that we could become uh, incredibly wealthy. And that's that's what I think uh, is the difference there. There's, there's nerds, but there's also this will, this drive, this, uh, this self-obsession, which uh, the character speaks to. Batman's not even a self-made man. All, all of that wealth was inherited. Uh, I know. That's so, what the thing. It always bugged me when they would say, yeah, Superman just inherited his powers. I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so who's Batman now? This, the, the Dark Knight. And um, what, what, what is that? When people talk about that being relatable, what are they relating to? Well, uh, the Batman that exists today in the public consciousness, which is the Christian Bale slash Ben Affleck version, the dark, grim, swear to me, Batman, that is very simply the ideal of American masculinity as it's envisioned by 12-year-old kids who got their lunch money stolen one too many times. You know, that is, he is basically Clint Eastwood, but jacked. You know, he's laconic. He uh, doesn't say much. Uh, he's always one step ahead of everybody. Uh, and uh, he never loses a fight. That's the, that's the thing that uh, people find out about him. That's what people love about him. That is, however, uh, only one version. The, the thing that you, you notice about this character, if you look at over the, him over the 77 years, is that he cycles. He's, he's got a several different kinds of cycles. He cycles from being lone Grim Avenger to uh, father figure to Robin to head of an extended Bat family of a bunch of people in Bat costumes. But then inevitably he goes back for you know a period of time. Doesn't usually doesn't last very long, but he goes back to being that lone vigilante, and then the cycle starts over again. Similarly, he cycles from light to dark to light to dark. There is the t- there's the time of the Frank Miller uh, Dark Knight Returns Batman, and then there is inevitably the time of the Joel Schumacher, you know, uh, very keying off of the Adam West Batman, and it's, I think right now, with the Batman vs. Superman film, haven't seen it yet, but I have seen the trailers, and I do know that they are trying to assert uh, these characters with, they're they're, they're trying to have us take these characters very, very seriously, and uh, I think we have just reached the the limit. I think the wheel has to start turning. I think you're starting to see it with uh, a trailer was just released today for the uh, Lego Batman movie, uh, in which Will Arnett plays mm-hmm. Batman as a self-obsessed jerk uh, who is taking himself way too seriously. I think that is only good. That it, that make that it improves uh, the the. Uh, it makes everything better once we can in- insert a little bit of light into this uh, dark character. I'm, I've been reading the advanced reviews of Batman versus Superman, and they're tossing around words like sociopath and fascist. Uh, and it really does feel like something's got to give, because also on, on the Superman front, that's, that is not the, the classic sense of Superman. And I've seen a lot of people very dissatisfied with the recent portrayals of Superman. Yeah, well, I mean, that's certainly true. I think um, Marvel knows something that DC doesn't seem to know. Marvel knows that you can't treat every character the same way. You have to deal with them with different tones. You have to take much different approaches. So if you try, if you look at the success of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight films and think, this is what we need, and this is something that the president of, of Warner has actually said in a, in a press release, that this is what we need. We need a dark, grim, gritty uh Superman, then you are fundamentally misreading uh, what that character is for. He is he embodies hope. He is not relatable uh, in the traditional sense because he represents an ideal, the best, the, our best self. He he's a very flattering mirror to us. Uh, he 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 is us as we wish to to be. But at the base of him is not this rage. And and you know if you grew up in the '90s, this is inside baseball. But if you grew up in the '90s, the comics turned really grim, gritty, and extreme then, uh, incredibly violent. Uh, if you grew up in the 90s and you look at the Batman versus Superman trailer, you see a 90s image comic brought to life. And that's fine. Again, the whole theme of the book is that there's a Batman for everybody, and this one isn't mine, but I'll just, you know, I can wait five minutes and, and mine will come around again, because that's just the nature of the beast. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Glenn Weldon, author of The Caped Crusade, who's running down the many evolutions of Batman. Um, and you know, we're also bringing Superman into this. It's sort of hard not to do that because um, they, Batman versus Superman, the upcoming film, is certainly not the first time that Batman and Superman have kind of been put face to face. But as you point out, uh, Superman's an ideal and he's also an invincible alien. Batman may have a infinite money, but he's only human. So why is there not a, a foregone conclusion to this, to this matchup between sort of the idealized Superman and um, maybe the, the id of Batman? Well, I mean, you've got uh, an Achilles heel built into the character, which is you know, a very smart thing. When you have somebody who is raw power, you have to give them an Achilles heel. In many ways, this is the classic battle, uh, jock versus nerd. Ultimate power, raw, uh, un- unchecked power versus strategy and cunning. And uh, Because, again, Batman's the nerd. He, what he does is he makes contingency plans within contingency plans. That is a relatively recent addition to the character, but it's, a, it's an important one. It's one that... Uh, endears him to his fan base in, in a real way. Only in the last, oh, towards the end of the 90s, did we start to see uh, the characterization of Batman as the master planner who's always six steps ahead of everybody else. He was always a detective, but now he's a, a, a strategist. And that's what they're going to key into there. They're going to they're gonna try to set up this uh, team battle between Team Jock and Team Nerd. And i got to go with Team Nerd just because I wrote a book on them. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your Superman book while we're here. Well, uh, the Superman book is more just a straightforward deep dive into the history of the character. Um, And I did come away with the conclusion that, you know, uh, Superman is a flattering mirror. He is us as Americans, as Americans want to be seen by the world, you know, incredibly powerful, because we like to think that we're incredibly powerful, but we always use that power with restraint wisely and we always look out for the little guy that is not necessarily the the americans that we are but it's the americans we want to be uh batman i thought going into this book uh is uh is the dark mirror right he's the rage we feel when we get cut off in traffic or whatever but that's not the the essence of the character the essence of the character is that oath that denny o'neill came up with uh, he, he recognized it is such an important part of the character. That oath is taking something that happened to him and transforming it into a crusade to help others. So he dedicates himself to a very hopeful notion, which is never again. I'm not going to let what happened to me happen to anybody else. So in many ways, they are very closely related, Superman and and Batman, because they are both creatures, not of rage, but of hope. And uh, I think the Zack Snyder's of the world and many of the folks who are uh, portraying him and, and want to see him as nothing but a grim, gritty badass are just missing a huge part of the character. So uh, Batman versus Superman and, and the upcoming Marvel Civil War film are, are just two in a long trend of superheroes being pitted against one another. What What's behind the consistent appeal of that idea? Like, How does it play in an era when some of the most devoted fans would maybe rather match the heroes up romantically? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, well, it goes back. I mean, you know, what Marvel did in the 60s was it understood the audience base, that the audience base had changed. So it wasn't very young kids anymore with very simplistic uh, wish fulfillment fantasies. You know, uh, I want to fly, I want to be strong, I want to run fast. These were kids who now had adolescence wish fulfillment fantasies. I want to get the girl. I want to be accepted. I, I, uh, I want to be able to pay rent. I, I, oh my God, Aunt May is dying again. All, all that stuff. That's a, that's a different, more sort of hormonal kind of, of adolescent wish fulfillment. And so what they did was they understood that the fan base also liked uh, cataloging everybody's powers, who's stronger than whom, whose butt could get kicked by whom. That's, that's, that's the conversation that nerds have over and over again. They used to happen in the back of the comic book shop, now they happen online. Uh, it's, it's, you have a, you have somebody you, you get invested in and you want to pit them against each other. It's the same thing that happens in professional wrestling. It's the same thing that happens in sports. Is it just nerd sports? Uh, and every Marvel comic, it seemed for a long time, started with some kind of elaborate misunderstanding between the heroes so that they would fight each other. We'd get, you know, maybe five or six pages of them in battle. It'd come to a stalemate and then they'd realize that they were duped and they would 
fight joint forces to fight the enemy. And I haven't seen Batman versus Superman yet, but uh, dollars to donuts, that's exactly what's going to happen because that is so ingrained into the infrastructure of the superhero story. So, so no one can actually win. No, 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 no. I, that's, that's, uh, that's again, comics. It's iteration. It's iteration. It's iteration. It's it's narrative without change. Uh, and uh, yeah, we have to come to a stalemate, and we have to uh, join forces and uh, and get the get the cheer. So then, so then we have this joining of forces, as as Mark pointed out in in the fanfic era, um, where that becomes maybe more literal and romantic than uh, has been portrayed in the comics themselves is is that just a whole untapped uh opportunity waiting to happen i mean are we going to see a batman heart superman film anytime soon oh maybe maybe not but let me tell you something i'm glad you brought that up because fan fiction is hugely important uh comics uh start to uh lose their power superheroes lose their power when they are too monolithic and for generations uh, the stories have come from a handful of writers uh, and, they, and the information has flowed downstream to the audience what fanfic does and what cosplay does in a different way is it engages with these stories with these characters in a much more um, uh, interactive uh, imaginative and and deeper way and you get more voices in the mix and that is inevitably better uh the the thing that will keep these films from uh having any success is once they start to seem too monolithic if we start to feel like it's the same tone it's the same story it's the same characters over and over again um getting more uh queer folk more people of color more women into the mix however you get them in there is going to improve the product is going to improve the storytelling inevitably so yeah i don't know if they're going to make it uh i don't know if Warner brothers is going to sign on to a uh uh, uh, Batman loves Superman, but let me tell you, the gay porn industry is already there. There's one coming out, <laughs> I think, uh, I think Friday. It's, uh, a Batman versus a Batman and Superman story. So, uh, you know, this is this is again, this is a net good. More different kind of stories uh, is always better. And you just just keeping on the theme of sexuality. I mean, you had said Superman is kind of like your 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 all power brute force jock batman there's I, I let's talk about sexuality even from the 60s uh, films or in the comic books till now oh yeah it actually goes back to look you got you add uh, a boy or a man and you have two dudes doing anything together uh there's going to be homoerotic subtext i mean it happens with holmes and watson it happens anytime two go- two dudes especially if they live together are are hanging out together and that actually was something that frederick wortham who came along and attacked the comic book industry and saying it was contributing to juvenile delinquency picked up on um and the reason he picked up on it, it is because it is there it's not intended to be there but as i write in the book your intention doesn't matter, especially with something like comics, because what we are presented with are uh, images, right? Not text. So the stuff that we pick up on, and I'm speaking here as a, as a gay dude, the stuff that we pick up on is literally subtext because it's coded into um, the the body language, the, the background in, in details in, in a given panel. We can find things because... You know, especially in the 50s, uh, there were no gay representations in media at all. And what what everybody does is look for some version of themselves uh, in in media. And straight folks see it all the time. They just it doesn't even register to them as representation. It's just the way the world is. But when we look at the world, at least up till very recently, we would see a world that not only didn't reflect our uh, way of being, our desires, but pretended like we didn't exist. So that's why when we don't see ourselves, we look deeper and then inevitably we find it. That's just how subtext works. So, uh, over and over again, you know, what, what Wortham did was he took all these panels out of context, which would show, uh, Dick Grayson and, and Bruce Wayne, you know, on a rowboat in a lake, you know, at midnight, uh, <laughs> under the, under the moonlight or waking up in bed together or, or lying in, under sun lamps together naked uh, in Wayne Manor and, and say something is going on here. And dude had a point. Something was going on there, but it wasn't. In, it wasn't intentional. But that doesn't. But again, it doesn't matter if it's intentional. It matters that uh, you can find it. Right. And uh, and certainly people have have found it um, both on on the positive side and found it as a as a negative. But uh, I feel like the tides turning there too as we're shifting away from uh, these sort of 
anti-queer morality stories and more into a world where, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years down the line, we could have Batman love Superman. I mean, that, that's, that's a thing I could conceivably see coming from a major studio sometime in my lifetime. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that would be awesome. Again, different stories make it better. If, uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin had come out today, uh, they would still get the, the hardcore nerd fan base would be just as homophobic and, and shrill as they were back then. But now they would be one voice in the mix. We would hear from other people, other, other, uh, queer folk, other women, other people of color. It would be not as monolithic as it was because, you know, it was at the, at the time that those films came out, the people who were online, uh, the people who were the loudest were the, the straight male nerds, and they were the ones who uh, initiated a huge um, a pushback against the Schumacher and his treatment. Um, but again, the more people enter the fan base, the more it improves. Uh, and this is probably what, we're, we're, what I'm trying to figure out. I'm writing a piece right now on what happens after nerd culture becomes culture. And hopefully, uh, you know, it's once once that... Uh, once the barriers to entry for so many things like Batman fandom or like, you know, wine tasting or anything like that, and once those barriers to entry drop and the gatekeepers go away, then, you know, having better access to knowledge uh, makes makes for a better nerd. So I was going to ask, um, what area of nerddom are you exploring now? It sounds like that's a, a shorter piece. Do you have more books in the works? Yeah, I think uh, I think maybe not a uh, another superhero thing. Maybe some other aspect of nerd culture. Because uh, I will say that what I really enjoyed about writing this book was when I could get away from the strict chronology of the history of the character. When I could try to widen out. Uh, because again, you you start to write 364 pages uh, about the history of a character, and uh, you are you are trapped by uh, chronology, right? This happened, and this happened, and this happened. It can start to feel like you're writing a term paper, or, or you know, you have you wake up uh, one night in a cold sweat, thinking, "Am I writing a 300-page Wikipedia entry? Is that all I'm doing?" Here? <laughs> so, so what I really liked doing was writing out and looking at the culture around him, because cultures are messy. Cultures are not tidy. They do not uh, influences don't. Uh, tick off thing, like something that happens in 1939 influences something that happens in 1970. Uh, so it's, it's, it's untidy. You have to kind of pull the threads apart. And the challenge is to find the through line, to find the stuff that matters. Because I could have detailed many more instances of, of examples of things that I talk about in the book. But, you know, I mean, for every normal who's going to look at this book and think, geez, this is, way too deep a dive. I don't care about Batman, you know, this much. Uh, there are 10 nerds who I guarantee you have already come up to me and said, well, I was surprised that Archie Goodwin's tenure as editor of the Batman title only merited one half a paragraph, you know. So <laughs> the the key is to to walk that line, to uh, reference the things that build the character and make the character uh, so important to his fan base, but not exhaust people with detail. Uh, you have to find the thing that resonates, the thing that's the, the important bits, and let the other stuff go as read. We've been talking with Glenn Weldon, and you can find his book, The Caped Crusade, in stores right now. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. I wish we could spend many hours more on our own deep dive. This has been great. Oh, thanks very much. It was a lot of fun. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese tells us about the London Book Fair. Stay tuned. I'm Dookie Hong. And I'm Matt Rodbard. We're the authors of Koreatown, a cookbook, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about the London Book Fair. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Rose. I apologize for my scratchy voice oh, I have no, my, and my annual spring cold. <laughs> that's quite all right. I hope it fades by the time you go to London. So tell us a little bit, when is the London Book Fair? London Book Fair this year is April... 11th, I believe it's the start, April 12th to the 14th or the 11th to the 14th, depending on when you actually mark the beginning of it. There's a pre-fair digital day uh, on the 11th called Quantum this year. 
And notably, this year before the London Book Fair, there is the 31st International Publishers Congress, uh, which is three days of meetings uh, involving international publishers. So quite an interesting program there ahead of the London Book Fair. Okay, so that's a separate event? Separate event, but Mm -hmm. it does tie in with London Book Fair. The two uh, cross over on one day, and people who sign up for the uh, International Publishers Congress also get entry into the book fair. So... That's very thoughtful of them to work work together that way. And it means you only have to make one plane trip, right? That's right. Exactly. So are you going to the fair yourself this year? I will be at the fair this year. I'll also be at the uh, Publishers Congress and at the digital pre-fair conference called Quantum, which is on Tuesday the 11th in London. And I'm looking forward to it. As always, it's, you know, it's spring in London. What's not to like you? I'm there with people talking about books. Uh, It's a terrific trip. So um, there's been this new venue. Do you think people are going to be a little more settled into it this year? Is it the same place that it was last yeah, year? Yeah, it's at the Olympia London, which is a really a beautiful venue. It has natural light. It's, it's just pretty much the opposite of so many conference centers around around the country, around internationally, I should say. Uh, it's lovely. Um, last year, there was a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of confusion in the beginning because people couldn't find their booths. There's actually three or four interconnected halls. Uh, the hallways are a little narrower. But uh, this year, I expect everybody's going to be pretty good right from the jump. Okay. Well, that sounds great. So that means you can get right into what you're there for, which is the programming and the deal making. Absolutely. Programming and deal making. And uh, this week's and Monday's issue of PW, we have our annual briefcase, which will highlight some of the things that agents will be bringing uh, and publishers will be bringing to London, rights that they're looking to sell. And also a little bit about the International Publishers Congress. Um, really interesting stuff at that at that Congress. Uh, I have to say there's uh, everything from copyright issues to uh, censorship and free speech issues. And they really do take their role in trumpeting free speech pretty seriously. And I expect that there's going to be uh, quite a bit of headlines generated from this Congress about the need to uh, ensure free press around the world. Now, I know how copyright works in the English and the American systems and kind of the history of that there. But it occurs to me that I don't have any sense of whether the concept sort of developed independently in other places or whether it's something that's kind of spread around from the Anglo-American perspective. Um, How is copyright handled differently in all these different countries? Well, I would say that the main difference between uh, copyright, as we know, in the U.S. and in Europe is the existence of moral rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is the idea that an author should control the fate of his or her work. Uh, That doesn't exist in the U.S. In the U.S., it's to promote uh, science and arts and progress. There's a public component to copyright uh, that doesn't exist. You as an author don't have ultimate control over what happens to your work. It goes into the public domain eventually, though we're trying to stop that apparently. (laughs) And in Europe, it's not that way. I think the biggest development, well, there's two things that are happening in Europe now that are of real interest and will be on the program at the Congress. One is that they're beginning to um, consider an overhaul of copyright in Europe. Uh, and this will be European-wide. The European Union is undertaking this study. And I think there's a lot of fear among publishers that copyright is going to be weakened by mm-hmm. this, that um, there will be more users' rights, such as the ability to resell digital content, things mm-hmm. of that nature. That would be a very big step. That would be a very big step. That has not happened. The the Europeans are angling towards that. Absolutely. The European courts have already angled towards that. But as to what will happen with, uh, with the copyright reform as it's being discussed in Europe remains to be seen. But... I would say that there is a a considerable amount of fear and concern over some of the proposals that are being made. Wow. So there's a lot to talk about at this Congress. Why have I not heard about this particular Congress before? Has it not usually been tied to the London Book Fair? It is not usually tied. uh, It travels around to different places around the world. I know it's... uh, it's been in Asia. It's been in a number of places. It's it's a fairly small meeting, but I think this year, because it's in London, it's going to get uh, quite a bit more attendance and quite a bit more press. Hmm. All right. Well, that sounds uh, like it's going to be very interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Worth taking the extra time. Um, so tell us a little bit about what's going to happen at the London Book Fair itself. Lots of deal making, lots of dinners, lots of conversations. We at Publishers Weekly, of course, will be reporting on it all. We'll have a show daily on the floor, mm-hmm. uh, which is available for free online every day on the Publishers Weekly website. So uh, readers and people who are interested in what's going on in London can follow along. 
with our reporting there. I'm excited because I'm personally doing a discussion this year with my counterpart at the bookseller. Mm-hmm. We're basically looking at both markets, the, the English and the U.S. market, and sort of just talking about developments there. So it's sort of a reporter's eye view of uh, developments in the, in the publishing world. At least I should say the English language publishing world. Right. So you you had mentioned um, discussions at the International Congress, the International Publishers Congress. The International Publishers Congress. But um, you mostly mentioned Europe. Do publishers come from other countries as well? Yes, absolutely. There's a large Asian contingency there, and you know, the Middle East as well. There's a in the United UAE. There's been an, an enormous growth in the publishing industry, and uh, there I think there's at least two sessions from UAE publishers on there. Um, Arabic is still the least translated language and i think there's some sense that uh that's going to change in the coming years well that's exciting indeed it is so lots of big changes happening and um the fair itself is uh, you mentioned it's a few days long uh, are there any particular events highlighted in the program during those times I think the event that I'm most looking forward to is actually at the Congress, and it's just a short address by Hachette CEO Arno Nouri. There's been a lot of discussion about what's happening with ebooks, I mm-hmm. think, lately, uh, and you know, print is sort of bouncing back. And Arno Nouri, who is the global CEO of Hachette, uh, is a real straight shooter. I had the opportunity to interview him from the stage at the Frankfurt Book Fair last year, and I was really sort of surprised by how little corporate speak he engaged in and how much he really sort of gave a sort of straight talk on where publishing is and where it's going. So that, to me, is like the most interesting session that I think is going to happen this year. Uh, and that's before the fair gets going. But in terms of uh, big authors or big names, um, not so much. It's more of an in- industry event. There will be authors there, of course. But sure. Yeah, there's no like big ballroom event. Where, right. You know, Stephen King would speak or something. Yeah. Well, that 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 would certainly be an interesting uh, new twist. Um, you know, they did announce an authors program this week, which I don't have in front of me. It's it's new, and they added a couple of author names. Of course, there will be authors there. Um, self-publishing is also a big part of the fair this year. They have an author center that they started last year, and. It was standing room only, jam-packed, impossible to get in the whole time. Wow. The surge, the interest in self-publishing has gotten so big that they needed to find a place for it at London. And apparently they haven't found a big enough place for it. So (laughs) I'll be curious to see this year if we were moved to a bigger room because last year just could not get in. And and that was for self-published authors to promote their own works, or it was for events and talks? It was for events and talks. It was for best practices, talks, etc. It was for publishers to talk with service providers. Um, and it was even for, you know, publishers to maybe even mingle with an agent or two and sort of, you know, pitch their book. I don't know how successful you'd really be at the London Book Fair with, you know, agents and publishers running around busily pitching a self-published book. But the fact that you're in the building... Probably helps. You never know who you're going to end up yeah, behind in, right. in line in, uh, you know, getting a coffee and you end up striking up a conversation and absolutely that per- person's your future agent or publisher. But you know, there's no shortage of, you know, services out there. It can be really confusing for an independent author yes. to find a service to use without being taken advantage of. So the fact that there's a place at this conference for people to get together and talk about best practices, good services, it's only good. Yeah, that sounds very valuable. And not every self-published author is there trying to break into traditional publishing anyway. There are plenty who are perfectly happy to keep self-publishing forever. Some people are doing quite well at it. My question for these people, and we've always had, I've had many conversations with them, is where do they find the time? It's so hard to write. It's very hard. And, and to publish. And to publish. So, you know, and actually there's quite a few sessions that are on that very subject. It, it, you know, at London last year, there were at least two that I recalled that were, you know, how do you find the time to self-publish and also write your next book? And there's a, an author that I met last year named Rachel Abbott. Two years ago, I met her. And she sold hundreds of thousands of her book via Amazon. She is incredibly successful. And she gave a great program on how she does it. And uh, she actually was a marketing professional in a, in a previous life. She worked in television. So she had some ideas about uh, how much of your day to devote to it and how to use social media effectively. This is just gold, just really valuable stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe she actually landed an agent and wound up with a traditional publishing deal for one of her books, but has now gone back to self-publishing. And my sense is that she was addicted as much to the thrill of doing good publishing as she was to writing her books. So 
Well, in my experience, the most successful self-published authors are the ones who take the publisher part of it really seriously, who do, like, who, who hire good jacket artists and designers and who hire good editors and do a lot of serious publicity and don't just see it as, you know, well, I uploaded my manuscript to Amazon. What more do I need to do? That's but, right. It's absolutely crucial to do all of those things. Uh, and that's where this, the, the best programs and the, some of the programs that they have at London Book Fair are really good. They do show you. Uh, the steps you need to take to do it successfully. And you really do have to commit to it and really do have to work to it. And it costs some money. Oh, you know, yeah. You definitely need to, uh, you know, spend some money on some good art. You know, take a course and learn how to do certain things uh, publicity-wise. Get a contact list. It's, you know, it's not an easy job. But definitely, as you said, some people are very successful at it. And so this sounds like a great opportunity for people who are maybe interested in getting started with self-publishing to go and find out more. Absolutely. You know, there's, it's, it's sort of growing to book fairs around the world. Frankfurt also has taken a, a, a bigger stake in self-publishing. Uh, at BookCon and BEA, you see more independent publishers coming in as well. It's only a trend that's only going to grow. Yeah. Well, that's very exciting. So anything else, any other highlights from London that you're particularly looking forward to other than walking around in the London spring rain? You know, hopefully it won't. <laughs> it won't rain while we're there. <laughs> Having been in London in the spring, I, you know, I, a, a I think big that's part, what you're getting. <laughs> you know, I have to, I'm going to knock on wood right now because for the last five years at the fair, we haven't had rain, maybe just a, a shower or two. So please don't jinx us there. Um, Networking is a huge part. Mm -hmm. It really is. So the, the 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 program is interesting, and some of the interviews that I have lined up, that's all well and good. But the the best things that happen are the people that you you run into in the halls, um, the announcements that uh, that are going to come out at the fair. Also very interesting. Anytime the industry gets a, a chance to get together and meet and talk uh, and, and sort of let everyone know where they're at, it's it's you know that face to face interaction is uh, essential. Yeah. Like, no matter how much you tweet at people, you can't really replace the conversation over a cup of coffee. Absolutely true. Well, that sounds like it's going to be a great time. I hope you have a wonderful experience at both of these events, which are sounding very interesting. Wish I could be there. I'm looking forward to myself, even though I'm flying right from Public Library Association meeting in Denver to London with a five-hour layover in New York. So I won't see you for a couple of weeks, Rose. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll miss you, Andrew, but um, I really look forward to your reports when you get back. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's always great to have My you. My pleasure, as always. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot in Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Tune in next week for another gripping author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 